Today's scripture comes from 1 Corinthians 15:58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. You may be seated. Thank you. Now, just a, a, a quick preface before I pray. Um, short text does not necessarily equal short sermon, just so you know. <clears throat> just, 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 if you've been around for a while, you know that's true, but if you're newer, that's important. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the joy it is to gather together in the name of your Son, Jesus. We thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit, for your presence with us, for the promise that you would never leave us nor forsake us, for Jesus' words that he would be with us until the end. And so we ask you that you would help us to apply that to our lives and our hearts, even as we gather here, that you would open our eyes, that we behold your glory, and that you would help us to live into the resurrection of Jesus in the new power that we receive, so that every area of our life would be transformed to your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, this is the 11th, if you're counting, 11th sermon on 1 Corinthians 15. 11th sermon on 1 Corinthians 15. Um, I had a conversation with someone last week who was very gently and very kindly saying, we know all of these sermons on the resurrection are starting to get a bit repetitive. Now, now that, that's not offensive to me. My response was, perfect. We are finally getting through to you. If you think it is now becoming a little bit repetitive to talk about the resurrection of Jesus ad nauseum, then we are beginning to break through in our understanding of the importance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. See, there is no formation without repetition. There's no formation without repetition. Uh, I think about Allison, who, my wife, who was leading worship. When we were dating, she was uh, in some sort of piano thing. I'm not a music guy. And she was going for some exam, and she had to practice for hours and hours and hours and hours to achieve the level of proficiency that she needed to graduate. Hours with no one watching, no one listening to become excellent at what she does. And then the ability to write songs, introduce them to us, uh, the song that she's written for Palm Sunday that we've been repeating over the last few weeks, that next week on Palm Sunday, we might have our hearts prepared to worship. I think about my little hockey-playing nephew who just shoots pucks in his garage for hours. I mean, he doesn't have his own garage, it's his parents' garage, but <laughs> he just shoots pucks for hours so that when he is called upon in the moment in the game where he needs to pick a corner. He knows he has the skill to do it. See, there's no formation without repetition. I, I think about my girls that play basketball and the amount of hours and hours that they spend honing their craft, working their skills, the foundational stuff of ball handling and shooting. I think about Leonardo da Vinci, the most famous and most celebrated painting in the world, the Mona Lisa. We look at that and we go, what a genius. And we're right to think that. The problem is we think that just happened. We don't know that he began working on the Mona Lisa in 1503 and that it was still on his easel when he died 15, 16 years later. It's no formation without repetition. The same is true in our life of faith. Your daily Bible reading, your daily prayers, your weekly gathering together for worship, word, and sacrament with the community of God's people, the church, your participation in a community group, getting yourself out the door and arriving at someone else's home to work through the scriptures and to pray together and to encourage each other and to challenge each other. It's the repetitions that form us as followers of Jesus, learning the disciplines and the skills needed to study the Bible, learning how to pray, allowing the scriptures to form our character so that we respond rightly in everyday life. 
in a way that glorifies God when we're presented in all kinds of different temptations. There's no formation without repetition. And so we've spent the first 10 weeks of our time in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, looking at the theology of the resurrection and the necessity of the resurrection, the centrality of the resurrection. And then we get to verse 58, the last verse in this great chapter on Jesus' resurrection. And that verse begins with a therefore. Therefore, because of all that came beforehand, Paul is now saying, here's how to live. This is about practicing the resurrection. This is about living it out every day. So we're going to look at it by talking about our resurrection foundation as resurrection people with a resurrection promise. Resurrection foundation, resurrection people, and resurrection promise. Let's look at the text. We'll read it in its entirety once again. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Okay, we have to see that the therefore in this text is doing a lot of work. It's carrying a lot of truth and bringing it to bear in the practicalities of our lives. The therefore is carrying the full weight of everything that we've seen in chapter 15 thus far. And it's carrying in particular, I think, especially what we see in the verses immediately preceding it. In verses 54 down through 57, it says in the second part of verse 54, it says, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The victory here is a victory over death. And because of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, all who trust in that work in their place, all who trust in the promises of God. Death's not the last word in our lives. That means the person who does trust in Jesus' work, who trusts in the gospel of Jesus, who trusts in the resurrection of Jesus and the promise of life to come. For them, death is not defining. We're not defined by death. We're defined by resurrection life. And see, the victory that this passage of Scripture is talking about in the therefore, that victory, that's God's victory. But it's a victory that every Christian is graciously invited to participate in. The therefore in our text means that we are not living this life to try and gain victory for ourselves, but it means we are appropriating the victory of Jesus in everything we do. It means we're not working for victory, it means we're working from victory. Right, we're still in the game, the game's still being played, but we already know the outcome. We know there's a W going on the board. It's still going on. You see this, we're not working to gain a right standing before God in our own strength. It means we're working from a right standing before God by faith. We're not working for victory, we're working from victory. And that changes everything. If you don't get the therefore in verse 58, the rest of what I'm going to say today doesn't matter. Think of it like this. In another passage, Romans chapter 6, it starts in verse 3. It says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? 
We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. See, the victory of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is at work in you now, presently and practically, that you might walk in the newness of that life. You're not defined by death. You're defined by the newness of life that comes through the resurrection of Jesus. It's a victorious, therefore. And we have a resurrection foundation that we are then formed through that victory to become and to be resurrection people. Look at the text again. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Therefore, since we are not working for victory, but from victory, he then addresses them. My beloved brothers and sisters, I love this. Paul's tenderness toward them is so prominent. It's a heavy letter, but his tenderness toward them is prominent. This church in Corinth were theologically confused. They were morally compromised. And they're still his brothers and sisters in the Lord. He's writing to a community here. Community of brothers and sisters as family. So you don't pick your family. You pick your friends. You don't pick your family. You know what that means? That means you're stuck with me as your brother. <laughs> and I'm stuck with you as my siblings. And together, we understand ourselves to be the beloved of God. Writing to a community, that's a good antidote to the expressive individualism that forms us in all aspects of our culture. And then what we do is we bring that to the text and we read this and we think this is all about me. No, it's actually not all about you. It's all about us, right? It's us, beloved brothers and sisters. Never forget when you're dealing with relationships in the church, these are beloved brothers and sisters. They're all part of the beloved family. We're all in this together. He's writing to them as a family and, and, and I want you to know that that means you don't have to try and figure this out all by yourselves. You get to rely on the wisdom of people who are older than you, younger than you, different than you, have a different background than you. In fact, we actually get to rely on brothers and sisters who've gone before us. We have a couple thousand years of brothers and sisters to rely on in terms of how to figure this out, how to live this out daily. We're all resurrection people. Verse 58 says, Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. This is an affectionate threefold charge to the family of God. He says, be steadfast, be immovable, be always abounding in the work of the Lord. Be, <laughs> be this, he says. Become and remain steadfast, immovable, and always abounding in the work of the Lord. How do we do this? We'll look at each one in turn. Be steadfast. Being steadfast has to do with your convictions, with what you believe to be true. It's about remaining strong and standing firm in the face of contrary opinion. 
It's about doing the work to form what you believe and then to reassert that through the way that you participate in spiritual disciplines and the community of the church and how those disciplines and the community will reinforce it so that you can remain standing and persevere in the victory of Jesus. Be steadfast. It echoes back to the beginning of the chapter in verses 1 and 2. Where Paul writes, now I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. It's living into the gospel which you have received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. See, being steadfast is holding fast to the word that you've received about the good news of Jesus and how you are then called to live in light of that truth. And how do you cultivate steadfast faith? There's no formation without repetition. How do you participate in the life, the victory, the resurrection of Jesus? How do you live that out every day of your life? How do you know how you're supposed to live that out every day of your life? It's here in God's word. There's no formation without repetition. Where it says we're called to be immovable. That's a similar truth. It's about not shifting or wavering in the convictions that you've established. It's about hanging on to the Jesus of the Bible. It's about knowing him. It's about serving him. And it's about allowing his victory to then hold you. Immovable. Hanging on to the Jesus of the Bible, not a Jesus of the invention of 21st century thought. Jesus of the Bible. How do we know what the Jesus of the Bible was like? Well, let me take you to Colossians 1. Beautiful picture. Verse 15 says, he, that's Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And then verse 21 says, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Look at verse 23 again. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. The word in our text about being immovable is the same word in the text about not shifting. Again, your immovability in your faith is related to not shifting in your steadfast convictions, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. Christ City, this is a word for us in trying times.
I get that the easiest place in the world to be steadfast and immovable is in this room right now. Easiest place, easiest time. Right here. Right now. And since there is no formation without repetition, you're going to hear the same message over and over. And then when you leave this room, you need to know that you're going to be confronted with the temptation to waver and shift from your hope in the gospel. This will happen. Jesus told his disciples it would happen. It happened all through the New Testament. It's happened for 2,000 years of Christian history. It happened last week. It will happen again. The easiest place in the world to remain steadfast and immovable is here in this room. And the easiest place in this room to hold these unwavering convictions that Jesus is who he says he is, that the Bible is the word of God, and that there is more to life than we can see here and now. The easiest place to hold those convictions and to remain steadfast and immovable is standing right here behind the pulpit. I know that because I wasn't always a pastor. I get it. I'm going to wake up tomorrow and start work with a bunch of people who love Jesus. We might pray together. We might talk about the Bible. We might encourage each other. We might check in and say, how are you doing? And I know that where you're going to work tomorrow, where you're going to school tomorrow, you might not have that luxury. I get it. I have been there before. And that's why the call is for all of us to be steadfast and immovable. It's not Sunday stuff we're talking about. Being steadfast and immovable is not Sunday stuff. It's Monday stuff. It's Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday stuff. It's also Sunday stuff. (laughs) But it's not just Sunday stuff. These are trying times. But that is not new to our generation. The challenges might be somewhat unique, but probably not. It's not new to our generation. This isn't a new battle. That's why when Paul wrote a letter to the Ephesians, in chapter 6 and verse 10, this is what he said. He said, finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. It's not new. That was written a couple thousand years ago for our benefit, but not to us directly. Be steadfast and immovable. Why? Why be steadfast and immovable? Well, because there's a call in our lives to embody the message in the way that we live as a community, building one another up in our faith, And there's a call in our lives to take this good news of the gospel outward, beyond here, and to live it out faithfully in everything that we do. Verse 58 says, Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. The therefore in this text gives us the power to be resurrection people to be steadfast, to be immovable, to be always abounding in the work of the Lord. Abounding is a great word. Abounding is a great word. I'm concerned that the word abounding might make you feel like you have to do more. Right? Abounding becomes kind of a frantic word if we 
don't hear it rightly. I just have to do more. I just have to do more, more work of the Lord. Always abounding in the work of the Lord, doing work of the Lord, abounding. What happens is we get off in 12 different directions, which means we're not going anywhere. And we forget about the steadfastness and immovability, even as we're trying to abound, because we're frantically trying to please God and please others and do things. That's not what it's talking about. The abounding here is talking more about the quality of the work you're doing, not the quantity. I'd like us to think about it as always excelling in the work of the Lord, giving ourselves fully to the work of the Lord. One scholar said, Paul's not talking about retaining the status quo in the church. He wants the people to grow in their love for the Lord and to communicate this in their deeds. That's where it all starts. See, a a resilient, steadfast, immovable faith will excel in the work of the Lord when the cultivation of that resilient faith starts with a love for God that is then practically translated into love for others in word and deed. It starts with love for God and it is poured out in love for others in word and deed. But here's where we need to dig in for a minute. What is the work of the Lord? Now, what's the thing that comes to mind for you when you hear that you're called to be excelling in the work of the Lord? When you read that, when you hear that, what do you think? There's a narrower way to understand this, and then there's a wider way to understand this. I'm going to take you to both. In the narrower sense of understanding the work of the Lord, this, this same word excelling is used in the previous chapter, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 12. Let me take you to it. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. So our text says that we're called to be always excelling in the work of the Lord. 1 Corinthians 14 says, strive to excel in building up the church. So you can make the argument that the work of the Lord is the same as building up the church. And that's a good argument. It's a good argument. In chapter 16, Paul's going to talk about the work of the Lord again. We're going to be there a couple weeks after Easter. Chapter 16, verse 8 says, Paul's writing, he says, I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost for a wide door for effective work has opened to me and there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, See that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So Paul's got his young disciple, Timothy. Paul's sending Timothy to go to some of the churches they've planted and to build them up, strengthen them. Continue the church planting work, the missionary work that they're doing. Again, the work of the Lord could then be talking about missionary church planting work and building up the church. And that's good stuff. It's true. In fact, it's good stuff that we're all called to do. My concern is that you hear all of this and you go, oh, always be excelling in the work of the Lord. Oh, perfect. We have professionals who do that. I dodged a bullet to say, dodged a bullet. That's not my call. That's that guy's call up on the stage. That's those missionaries we support. They're doing the work of the Lord. Woo! Not me. And then you'd be wrong. That's not what it's talking about. This is the work we're all called to do. I think 1 Corinthians is talking about the work of extending the gospel through personal evangelism. And you go, ooh, evangelism, that's an antiquated word. It just means good newsing. Just sharing the good news. 
You go, ooh, evangelism. That means I have to have a confrontive conversation with somebody in my life about how they're wrong and I'm right. I mean, ultimately, yes. <laughs> ah, sharing the hope you have that they might also come to be a participant in sharing in that same hope. It's sharing the most important message in your life, the most transformative thing you know with people you care about. I think that's part of the work of the Lord. I think it's about the work of planting churches that will outlast us. When we moved to Vancouver 12 years ago, I was not interested in planting a church that didn't make it beyond me. There was a team of us that planted this church and none of us thought, well, as long as it's here for us, then that's good enough. You know, the people who built this building, who planted a church in this neighborhood that eventually built this building and moved in and worshipped here, I don't know any of their names. Isn't that glorious? I don't know any of their names. I'm sure I could find them, but I don't know their names. Their work has outlasted their lives. I want to build like that. That's the work of the Lord. I think it's the work of building up the church through the gifts of the Holy Spirit that God has given each of us. That's what the text is talking about, 1 Corinthians 14, using the gifts that God has given us to build up and strengthen the church. That's discipleship. Discipleship's super easy. A disciple is a follower of Jesus, and discipleship is helping someone follow Jesus. That's not my job. That's your job. I mean, it's my job too. It's not uniquely my job. I'm part of it, and so are you. Using the gifts that God has given you to build up and strengthen the church. If you've been around here for any length of time, you know that I'm going to remind you that all of this is not the work of professional Christians. This is the work of every single one of us. We are the church. We are Christ City. This is not a church. It's a building that we use for worship. You don't go to church. You gather with the church because you are the church, which means the call for you is to be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the work of the Lord because you are the church. When we plant churches, we say some are sent and some do the sending, but everybody's involved. It's participatory, not observation only. And I get that I'm standing here and you're all looking at me. That seems a lot like observation at the moment. And if 24-7 you were sitting down looking at somebody teaching... That would be weird. That'd be really weird, actually. This is like a, a approximately 40-minute window in your week. The work of the Lord is 24-7. This is a moment of time for you to be encouraged in the Scriptures, to be built up and strengthened in your faith, that you might be steadfast, immovable, and always abounding in the work of the Lord. This is a little moment of time to be reminded of how good God is, how much you need him, and what he's called you to do. And then we go. The work of the Lord that each of us is called to excel in is not just here. It's there. But if you leave here today thinking that it's limited to the work that happens on this platform on a Sunday, I will have utterly failed you. It's not just here. It's not just in this building. 
See, Paul's letter to the Ephesians tells us that when Jesus ascended, that Jesus gave gifts to the church, and those gifts had a purpose. Look at it in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Did you notice the same themes of steadfast, immovable, and the work of the Lord? It's about being equipped with resilient faith. It's about being equipped to be steadfast and immovable. It's about equipping the saints for the work of ministry, to excel in the work of the Lord. Now, I said there's a narrower way to understand this, and then there's a wider way to understand this. We've looked so far at the narrower way. The narrower way of looking at this at excelling in the work of the Lord is specifically related to building up the church. And that's good and that is right. I'm not dismissing that in any way, shape, or form. In fact, I am bringing it to you as a primary means of doing this. But if we take the wider way of looking at it, you don't lose any of what I've already shared as the narrow impulse when you look at the broader way or the wider way of understanding this text. What I mean is Colossians 3.17. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whatever you do, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Well, whatever you do, do in the name of Jesus. That's good. I I guess I would add to that. If you can't do it in the name of Jesus, should you be doing it anyways? So everything you do, do in the name of Jesus. See, the resurrection of Jesus transforms every part of our lives, but whatever the resurrection has not touched will not be transformed. Let me say it again because I think we need to hear this. The resurrection of Jesus will transform every part of your life that it touches, but everything that it does not touch will not be transformed. And here's the problem. We love to bifurcate our life into sort of sacred and secular Or you have like your holy part of your life and then you have the rest of your life. But that's not what the Bible's teaching. For some reason, women get this more intuitively than men. Now, I'm married and I have three daughters and I don't understand the female mind quite yet. (laughs) But for some reason, ladies, you, you get this quicker. That every other area of life is intermingled and tangled up with every other thing that goes on. When we're talking about preparing for marriage, we talk about this stuff in the, in the course. Men struggle to get this a little bit more. I'm not saying, you know, these are broad, general, sweeping statements. Men struggle with this more because we compartmentalize things. Right? You've got your, hey, I'm in church right now. I'm in my church, my church square. I've compartmentalized it into this little spot. my religious life. I'm going to leave here pretty soon, though. I'm going to go back into driving around the city like a maniac life. <laughs> and those two are not touching. <laughs> okay? Tomorrow morning, you're going to go to work, you're going to go to school, or you're going to be taking care of your family or whatever it is that you're doing. 
And there's a temptation to compartmentalize one from the other. So here is your Christian life, Sunday. Here is your work life, Monday. You compartmentalize it. You lock it off. The two shall not touch. I don't know why, but we tend to struggle with this. We've got lots of boxes for things. This is what I talk about in the course that we do. I also have a nothing box. It's, It's a wonderful box. And when any of the four ladies who live in my house go, what are you doing? And I go, nothing. They go, what do you mean? Oh, I'm doing nothing. And none of them can seem to understand that that is a real thing. I have a real box for that. I have compartmentalized a section of my life where I do nothing and it's awesome. The problem comes when I start to compartmentalize my relationships my family, my work, my faith. So you go to work and you're just a skull crusher. You're just dominating people. You are climbing the corporate ladder. Come hell or high water, you don't care. Look, I am as aggressive and competitive as anybody else in this room. But you have to care about people. You can't compartmentalize that. If you can't do it in the name of Jesus, should you be doing it? Here's what I'm getting at. Earlier in 1 Corinthians 15, we've been arguing that the resurrection of Jesus had a wider scope than just our personal salvation. That there's a cosmic dimension to this. That Jesus' resurrection was the first fruit of new creation. And that at the end, we're going to have a new heaven and a new earth. It's wider. And I think the victorious therefore at the beginning of our text I think that's a resurrection foundation that enables us as God's resurrection people to live it out in every facet of society. I think it's a wide view. It doesn't preclude the narrower view of building up the church, but it includes much more. And this is all part of the resurrection promise that we see in our text. We've seen the foundation, we've seen the people, now the promise. Again, look at the text. Verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. One guy that I read on this, he said it's like a child that you put up on something high and then they jump into your arms. You may have done that with a niece or a nephew, little kids around you, your own children, your grandchildren, I don't know who it is. You put them up high and you teach them that they can jump to you and you're going to catch them. And those little kids just throw themselves at you, right? Just woo! Like, just no regard for the fact that their legs will break if they fall. Why? Because they know you will catch them. Look at this. Always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. You can be assured that there's a promise that your labor is not in vain. You can excel in the work of the Lord in every area of your life, knowing that your labor is not in vain. And I don't think the work of the Lord in this text is limited to the work done in the church. I think it extends to any and all work done in Jesus' name by the church. It's any and all work done unto the Lord. That means changing diapers, building houses, programming efficient ways for people to use technology. When they're done with a heart for God and a desire to serve others in love, they are not in vain. Paul Stevens has written about this. He said, this promise brings new meaning to those whose toil is in the so-called secular work, the arts, education, business, and politics. They too are shaping the future of creation in some limited way, just as our missionaries and pastors. 
Most people think that only religious work will not be in vain, but if Christ is the firstborn from the grave, then all work has eternal consequences, whether homemaking or being a stockbroker. Another scholar in a book that I've recommended says, all that we do in faith, all that we do in faith, hope, and love, in the present, in obedience to our ascended Lord and in the power of his Spirit, will be enhanced and transformed at his appearing. What you do in the present by painting, preaching, singing, sewing, praying, teaching, building hospitals, digging wells, campaigning for justice, writing poems, caring for the needy, loving your neighbor as yourself, all these things will last into God's future. So Christ City, hear me, because I know that there are some of you who struggle with this mightily. You don't need to quit your job to do the work of the Lord. You just need to do your work in the name of the Lord. You don't need to quit your job to do the work of the Lord. You need to do your work in the name of the Lord. Some of you may feel called to vocational ministry, to be trained up to work in a church or as a missionary. That's wonderful. We will work with you if that's your call. Some of you need to do that. But most of us won't. But we still work. We still participate in culture. And the work that we do, we have to understand, goes on. There's something happening when we recognize that we don't have to quit our work, that we just have to do it differently. I've had so many conversations with people over the years who think, my work is meaningless. I should quit and become a pastor. Maybe. But mostly, no. <laughs> I'd like you to be. We, there's a great need in the church in Canada. There's statistics that talk about the church the pastors that are retiring versus the pastors that are being raised up, and the numbers are not equal. It's, it's not a good situation. So if you feel called to ministry, come and talk to me. We'll train you up. But my, my point is, the work you're doing is not meaningless. That means that when you're pressured to cave on your Christian convictions in the workplace, but you remain steadfast. That means you're living as salt and light people, empowered by the victorious therefore of the resurrection, and your labor is not in vain. It's not in vain. That means when you are remaining immovable in your faith, even when you're tempted to shift away from the hope of the gospel in favor of softening your faith to accommodate the spirit of the age, it means your labor is not in vain. That is a temptation that you will face, if not today, then tomorrow. Will you just accommodate the spirit of the age? Will you just shift slightly off of your convictions to accommodate the spirit of the age. No, you are immovable in Christ, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. See, if you want to excel in the work of the Lord in your workplace, in whatever you do, if you really want to take the truth of this text for a walk in your everyday life, do something radical. Whether it's school or work or home, whatever you're doing, do, do this. If it's in your workplace, do something radical. Do, do something radical this week, tomorrow. Go to work and go to that person you've been treating like garbage and say, I'm sorry. I've recognized that the way I've been treating you is not right. And I just wanted to apologize. I wanted to ask for your forgiveness. Believe it or not, apologizing, apologizing and, and, and forgiving have become quite countercultural. Imagine what that does in your workplace. I mean, first of all, it's going to be amazing. That person's going to be super confused. 
Like, like, like what happened there? And then they're going to come back and there's going to be a follow. I'll tell you right now, if you do this tomorrow, by the end of the week, there'll be a follow-up conversation that you're going to have with that person. And they're going to go, uh, is everything okay? Like, what, what, what was that? And you're going to go, look, I was gathering with my church on Sunday and I was convicted about the way that I was treating you. And I just wanted to apologize because I, I believe I live by a higher law and that God's called me to love people as he loves people. And they're going to go, wow. Because you know what our world is looking for? They're looking for something to stand on. We live in a shifting generation. I mean, I don't even know what virtue to signal anymore to be on the right side. <laughs> it changes so fast. How about 2,000-year-old convictions that Jesus Christ is Lord? How about the Bible is the word of God and the best way for human beings to live a flourishing life? I'm telling you, you think that they're opposing you, they just don't understand. They're actually drawn to it. When you go and apologize and ask for forgiveness, the light of Christ shines in your life. You know what happens? You end up being a confidant, a mentor, a counselor. And when those people come to you in the workplace, in school, and in your life, in your neighborhood, you end up becoming that person they know they can trust because you are steadfast and immovable. And they'll confide in you. And in that moment, you can say, I don't know what you believe, but I believe in God, and if it would be okay, I'd love to pray for you in the name of Jesus. I have never yet encountered someone who said no to me praying for them. Just pray for them. You know, if you start out with like, oh God, thine is the... No, don't do that. <laughs> Say, God, I know that you love this person, and they're struggling with this. And I just bring it before you because I know you are the God of love but you also provide solutions to the problems we have. And you just pray. Excel in the work of the Lord. Refuse to gossip. Be honest when it hurts. Like I'll tell you, 10,000 years from now, you're not going to be worried about the fact that there was one more ladder you could climb in the corporate structure. You just won't. Be honest and have integrity even when it hurts. Value people for who they are, not just what they can do for you. Sharing the hope you have in Jesus is never in vain. Your prayers are never in vain. Loving your neighbor as yourself is never in vain. You have no idea what's going on in that person's life, but when you love them, it could transform their entire existence. Any and all work you do in the name of Jesus as work unto the Lord, I'm telling you, is not going to be in vain because we're not working for victory. We're working from victory. We don't have to try and figure this out by ourselves. And we know that God empowers us to be steadfast, immovable, and always excelling in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord our labor is not in vain. Amen? Amen. Would you stand and respond with me?